Friends, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel 11, we've been preaching through the book of Ephesians. We'll return to that next week. But today, we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel, which is absolutely one of my favorite books of the Bible. 1 Samuel, you have some of the great themes of the kingdom of God, but you have it in a terrific adventure story. You've got a giant, you've got warfare, you've got battle, you've got friendship. I mean, I think 1 Samuel makes the Game of Thrones look like the Magic Kingdom. I mean, you got real meaty stuff. This is a man's man book, and I'm going to read just a passage, a violent passage from 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter to the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people, and why are they weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on all the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered, so that not two of them were left together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this this morning is all about your Holy Spirit, and how your Spirit fills us and moves us to do what we could not do in and of ourselves, and so we ask for that same Holy Spirit to be at work even now. Even as we hear these words, even as we seek to apply them to our lives, may your Holy Spirit fill us, anoint us, overcome us, so that we would be in step with him to become more and more like your son Jesus. We ask this in his name, amen. Well, I think the best way to approach this passage is to kind of get a little background and remind ourselves of the story of what happens in 1 Samuel 11, and then at the end, we're going to tease out some application for us as the church. Saul and Nahash's story is really like a David and Goliath story 
that comes to us long before we ever meet the people David and Goliath, which come to us in chapter 17. Let's remind ourselves a little bit of the background here. Saul, we know, is the very first king of Israel. Israel had come out out of the land of Egypt. They came out under the leadership of Moses in the Exodus. And after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they came to Canaan and they conquered the land of Canaan, Palestine, under the leadership of Joshua. And then after Joshua, you enter the period of the judges where it is a bitter battle of Israel for peace and security and safety, but also a battle for faith. And during those hundreds of years, God raises up judges in different times and places to defend the people and to lead the people into victory time and time again. Well, you know this story. You know that the people of Israel, after experiencing this, they eventually come to Samuel, who is their prophet, and they say to him, give us a human king. We don't have one. The other nations have one. We want a king like the other nations so that he will fight for us and he will defend us. Well, by asking for a human king, the people of Israel are essentially rejecting God as their king. And even though Samuel the prophet and God are sad, God surprisingly agrees and says, I'll give you a king. Which I think is a very good reminder to us to be careful for what we wish for. Sometimes God answers our prayers. Sometimes he gives us what we want, even if that thing is going to wound us. He answers Israel's prayer and he gives them a king who is Saul. And pretty much everybody, except for a few guys, agree that Saul should be king, except for Saul himself. He's really afraid and very reluctant to become the first king of Israel. In fact, his coronation is a really, really embarrassing story. You can read about it in chapter 10 when all the people of Israel gather to cast lots to see who God is going to anoint as king. The lot falls on the man Saul and when they turn around to anoint him as king to coronate him in front of all these people who are gathered, they can't find him. He's nowhere to be found and so they need to ask God where Saul is and God reveals he's hiding with the baggage. He's not even here. And so everybody needs to wait as someone goes to fetch their future king and bring him before them so that they can crown him and honor him as king. He's tall, he's attractive, he's wealthy, but he is very indecisive and very timid and it's not clear how he's going to be the king that God is calling him to be to defend his people. So if you're thinking about the David and Goliath story, Saul, king of the Israelites, is our David. And now we're going to meet our Goliath, which is Nahash, king of the Ammonites. Now, 1 Samuel 11 is the first time we actually meet King Nahash. But if we look outside the Bible to historical accounts, we find that Nahash was actually wreaking havoc east of the Jordan River for a long, long time. He, he has made this his bread and butter to destroy the small tribes and kingdoms that are around him and to inflict incredible damage on them. 
So when you're thinking about the Ammonites, I want you to think about seasoned warriors. These are cold killers. These men are incredibly cruel. So the setting comes to us in Jabesh Gilead. Basically, um, it helps to know a little bit of our geography in Israel if we want to know where Jabesh Gilead is. And if you're taking notes and you want to make a map, here's a very simple map of Israel. You make a small circle at the top of your page, and that's going to be the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus, a thousand years from now, here at this point, is going to do his ministry. And then below that, you make this kind of long oval, and that's going to be the Dead Sea. And then you make a little squiggly line to attach them, and that's going to be the Jordan River. And there you have your map of Israel. To the west, you know, is the Mediterranean Sea. To the east is Babylon and the ancient Near East. But that... That is basically what Israel looked like in Saul's day. And before David conquers everything, in Saul's day, the 12 tribes of Israel, they're really just kind of hugging those bodies of water. They haven't got all the way to the coast. They haven't beat the Philistines yet. So they're just kind of around those seas, and they're on either side of the Jordan River, and and they're surrounded on every side by different enemies. What's important about that is Jabesh Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan River, and the majority of Israel is on the west side of the Jordan River. And in the book of Judges, when one of the tribes gets attacked, Israel has no standing army. She doesn't respond as a united body. It's almost like every tribe for himself. So if your tribe is being attacked, it's typically just you and the tribes around you that help you with the judge that God has appointed. It's not all Israel coming together. And where that's important is an Israelite will rarely cross the Jordan River to help another Israelite. If you're getting attacked on the east side, that's an east side problem. If you're getting attacked on the west side, that's a west side problem. And Israelites rarely cross the Jordan River to help each other out. So if you're Jabesh Gilead, and you're on the slim east side of the Jordan River, things look really, really bleak for you when King Nahash comes. He's done this before. He's done this to neighbors around you. And he comes and lays a siege around Jabesh Gilead, and they so understand that they have no way to stand against him that they immediately agree the moment he shows up, we will be your slaves. We'll just give the city up. We're going to be your slaves and we don't even have to fight a battle. Now Nahash says to them, okay, we can do that. You can be my slaves. But before you do that, I'm going to take every man of military age and I'm going to gouge out his right eye, which is pretty gruesome. Now, the reason he says that is because a right eye is really important if you're fighting battles. Like if you were holding a shield in your left hand, you're using your right eye dominant to be able to see and swing your sword. Or if you used a bow, you would really be using your right eye to be able to shoot the arrow accurately. So this is a a strategic move. I want to gouge out their right eyes so they're not effective warriors. But it's also just meant to embarrass them. I want to humiliate you as a city. I don't just want to defeat you. This is like Ohio State, Oregon State. I just want to grind you into the ground so that everybody remembers this day that I did this to you. Well, Jabez says, okay, on second thought, we don't want to be your slaves. We want to send messengers and see if we can get help. Well, give us seven days. 
We'll ask Israel west of the Jordan River if they'll come help us. Nahash, he probably already knows, nobody is going to come to help you. He already knows that seven days is not nearly enough time to get an army together to cross the Jordan and help them. So I don't know if this is arrogance. I don't know if he just wants to spare himself a long, expensive siege. But he says, whatever, take your seven days, go get the help you need, and then you're going to come out and you're going to be my slaves. The messengers, they leave Jabesh Gilead, they cross the Jordan River, and what happens next is so surprising. It is so divine, it is so humanly impossible that it has the Holy Spirit's fingerprints all over this thing. We cannot imagine what God is about to do. The messengers, they cross the Jordan. And they go straight to the city, Gibeah, of their brand new king, Saul. Saul, you can understand how kingship is working. He becomes king, but then he immediately goes back to being a farmer. He's just plowing his field. But they tell him what happened. And look at verse 6. I love this verse. Saul hears about this. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. I love that picture of the Holy Spirit. This is not Galatians 5 spiritual fruit of love and joy and peace and patience The Spirit gives us those very beautiful and lovely and crochet-worthy fruits. This is the spiritual fruit of anger. This is the spiritual, God-given fruit of seething rage for justice. When the Spirit falls on Saul, his first reaction is to get really, really angry. And because he does that, this is now not the Saul that we had met in chapter 9, who's really indecisive about what he should do about finding his donkeys. And this is not the Saul of chapter 10, who is so timid that he is literally hiding in the baggage area from becoming king. This is the spirit-filled Saul. This is a brand new Saul in God's making. He takes his oxen, these poor guys, he chops them into pieces, he sends the pieces throughout the four corners of Israel, and he sends messengers that say, if you do not join Samuel and I to bring King Nahash to justice, this is what's going to happen to your herd and your flock. No surprise, Verse 7, then the dread of the Lord fell upon all the people and they came out as one man. The Spirit moves their leader Saul. The Spirit moves the people of Israel to come as one man. And they all gather in this one place west of the Jordan to fight. Now remember, you don't have a standing army here. Israel is not paying taxes. They don't have men who have been through boot camp. These are not soldiers who have done drills before. In fact, most of these guys probably don't have proper weapons. Some of them have swords. Some of them have spears. Some of them inherited those things. But a lot of these guys, they brought their farm tools. I mean, they brought hammers and pruning hooks. 
But it doesn't matter. They gather as one man. Saul, he divides them into three companies. He attacks before dawn. He smashes the Ammonite army so that by lunchtime, no two soldiers are standing together. It is such a remarkable, dramatic, unexpected victory at such unlikely odds that Saul can't help but say in verse 13, Today the Lord has worked salvation for Israel. That's the only way I can describe what just happened. Today God worked his salvation for our people. What an incredible story to see God move in this people. And I want to get an application from this, and we need to dig in further. But one of the questions I really want to know as as we try to make sense of a a, a battle that happened 3,000 years ago and what that means for the church today is, how did Saul do this? I mean, how did he actually pull off this kind of military victory? Now, I know the very simple answer that we would say right away is that God's Spirit was with him, but that answer is too simple for my taste. I want, to, I want to explore this a little deeper and get into the weeds and the details of this story. We know that the Holy Spirit rushed upon him and made him angry. We know that the Spirit fell upon the people of Israel and united them as one person. But there's a lot more that happens in this victory than just Saul getting angry and just the people of God gathering as one man. Because Saul, after all, is a brand new leader. He's a brand new commander. We don't actually know if before this point Saul has fought in a single battle. We don't have any record of him being a soldier, much less leading a group of people into battle. So he he has never done this before. And yet his first fight is brilliant. How, How did he know to do these things? I mean... How did Saul know that he should divide his his force into three companies? How did Saul know, if this is his first time, that he should strike before dawn? How was he able to synchronize a really complicated military maneuver in the dark against a well-guarded military camp? Was that the Holy Spirit's? Or was some part of that Saul's brilliance and ability to rally good commanders around him? I guess at the crux of that question is, where does the Holy Spirit end and where does the church begin? Like if the Spirit is going to work in us, if he's going to do things in us, where exactly is his portion of the labor And where exactly is our portion of the labor when we're asking the Spirit to work inside of us? I think that's a great question, and I think that's a fantastic question and highly applicable to anyone who has ever prayed for anything in their life. Where does the Spirit end, and where do I begin? If I'm going to God and I'm praying for something, if I'm asking Him to do something, God, help me with a test that I have coming up this week. Lord, help me with a project that I'm doing at work. Lord, help me with a new ministry that I'm about to undertake. Help me with a hard relationship that I have with somebody. Help me in this new season where I'm trying to set boundaries. Help me lead other people. Help me lead my family. 
how much of that is God going to do? And how much of that do we need to be disciplined to do? Where, where is the division of labor when it comes to us and the Holy Spirit at work in us? Well, I think the very simple answer for today from our text is it actually doesn't really matter that much. As much as I'm dying to know the answer to that, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we get a handle on where the Holy Spirit ends and where our God-given talents and abilities and gifts begin because we're looking to God to deliver and he may rush upon us with great strength, but somebody still needs to divide the army into three companies and set their alarm for 2 a.m. We're going to pray. We're going to trust God. We're going to walk by faith. But then we show up and we roll up our sleeves and we get to work with our family, our relationships, and our ministries with the abilities that God has given us to do. In God's mercy, this is how he has created us to live our Christian lives. This situation is very dramatic in 1 Samuel 11 and it is very unique, never to be repeated, perhaps in our day. But the principle behind it is very simple and very normal for every single Christian. The Spirit appears in our life. He works in our lives, sometimes dramatically, sometimes softly and quietly. We begin to roll up our sleeves and do the work that God has called us to do. And it will not be clear to us where the Spirit is working and where He simply disciplined us to get to work and do the ministry that He's called us to do. That's what the Bible calls being led by the Spirit. That's what scripture likes to call being in step with the Spirit. And there's a bunch of examples in the New Testament of how these two things converge. Me trying to live a disciplined and energetic and active Christian life and God sending His Spirit to do in me what I can't possibly do by myself. Here's an example. This is Paul's life mission statement. And it's in Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the first half. And that sounds like a ton of work. That's a lot of proclaiming and warning and teaching with all wisdom. That sounds like it's going to take a lot of preparation and a lot of work. And you're absolutely right, it does. But then he finishes by saying, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You see that beautiful blend of the spirit inside of me putting me to work? I suspect that if you would have asked the Apostle Paul, okay, when you're standing up in these new cities and new communities and you begin to do this work of proclaiming and warning and teaching so that you can present everyone mature in Christ, that sounds like a ton of preparation. That sounds like a ton of Bible study. That sounds like getting your notes just right. What part of that is you and what part of that is the Holy Spirit in you? And Paul would have said, yes, that's absolutely right. It is me preparing, and it is the Spirit at work. 
Think about another passage, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Get to work, double down, and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How? Because it is God who is in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Get to work because God is working. What I love about that passage is it's not just the work that he's doing, but it's even the will to do that work. When God's Spirit fills you, he actually makes you want to do the things that he wants you to do. And then he gives you the energy and the power to turn around and do those very things. One more verse, Ephesians 2, 10. We're going to talk about this in our Ephesians study. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Imagine your Christian life spread out before you as God's preparation of all the good things that he's going to empower you to do. When Saul, perhaps very afraid in his own strength, took his first step across the Jordan River, not actually knowing what was going to happen between this ragtag group of farmers and this seasoned Ammonite army, it was as if God had laid that path before him, the good works that he was going to do by the Holy Spirit's power. Saints, God's Spirit is in you. He's in you to want to do what He wants you to do. To will and to work for His good pleasure. He's in you preparing good works beforehand. He's in you to give you strength and energy to toil. He is in you because He rushes upon you. Sometimes in seething rage for justice. And sometimes He falls upon you to scare you into unity one with another person. Or sometimes He comes in you to bear good fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and when you walk out of this room led by him to muster every spiritual gift every talent every ability every resource that you have at your disposal to live a godward life it is him in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure I don't know where the Spirit ends and you begin. And that's one of the most beautiful aspects of the Christian life. One commentator said that this chapter, 1 Samuel 11, is simply Jesus' Old Testament way of saying what he says in John 15, 5b, which is, without me, Christian, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Let's pray together. Father, left to our own devices, we think that we can do a lot of things. We think that we have gifts and abilities. We think we have talents and resources. We have money and a home that we can leverage for your kingdom. And we can, but it is only because your spirit fills us to want to do, to will to do, and to set about doing kingdom work that you have called us to. 
Would you do that more and more in our church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.